Well, amen. 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 Someday we will be there praising the name of the Lord our God in person. And I can't wait for that. Truly, that will be the day our hearts long for. If you are in Christ here today, if you are in the spirit, belonging to Christ, that is the cry of your heart. And we're entering a section of scripture now that draws to a conclusion the many things that Paul has said for the first seven chapters and reflects on those and the ramifications of what it all means and at the same time gives us a vision for what's to come. If you, like me, love living here in East Tennessee, then no doubt you have taken a trip to the Smoky Mountains. And if you don't want to pay a fee to park there anymore, I would recommend taking the Foothills Parkway. You know, when I, when I have traveled there with my family, going through Townsend, and right before you get to the National Park, just going right from our perspective up into the Foothills Parkway, and pulling off so that we can see the beauty of the Smoky Mountains. Now, I've lived in places and even other countries that have big mountains, but I don't know any as majestic and as beautiful as the Smokies. And I hope that earns me some points here with you Rocky Top folks this morning. (laughs) But honestly, as I looked out of the Foothills Parkway, I can see the peaks and the smoke and the vistas of what we're about to enter into as we drive further into the park. Now, when you get into the park, there are deeply wooded roads and some tight spaces and turns that come that make you wish that you were back on that overlook looking out over the Smoky Mountains instead of trying to drive through it and wind your way up perhaps to Cades Cove or in some other direction. This is going to happen to us as we go into Romans 9 through 11. There are some things there that are hard to understand, but that's why Romans 8 comes first. And that's why it comes after Romans 7 and all that came before it. If you consider in Romans 7, there's the the victory in the midst of battle that Pastor Sam talked about last week. We have victory. We live in victory, but we are in battle with the flesh. The flesh is mentioned dozens of times. But when you get to chapter 8, the spirit in the ESV is mentioned 20 times. He's only been mentioned a couple of times up to this point. So a real chapter has turned, and we are now treading upon the holy ground of Romans to understand how people who are justified yet who still struggle with sin can truly live in the power and the victory that Jesus has won for us at the cross. As we get into this text today, we do see a theme that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is life. And we're looking at the theme this morning, life in the spirit life in the spirit. We're going to see three points today, um, and I've listed them this way. We want to look at the position of life in the spirit. What does it mean to live in the spirit and to have life in the Holy Spirit? And then secondly, what is the pattern of life in the spirit? What are we going to do if we are in the spirit? What does it look like to live that way? And in the third place, what is the promise of life in the spirit? Because Ultimately, it's not all about the ups and downs and the struggles of the Christian life. It is about victory and the promise of life 
now and the promise of life to come. So where the spirit of the Lord is, there is life. We want to get into that first point this morning, and I want to talk about your position if you are in the spirit. Your position this morning, right now, if the spirit of Christ is in you. Look again at verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we think about our position of life in the Spirit, the first thing we know about our standing, our position, what's true about us, is that we no longer face condemnation. There is no condemnation. This is really, really good, but I think it's difficult for Christians to believe this. We go back and forth depending on how we feel any given day. If we feel particularly successful living as Christians, we've done some righteous things, we've been good to other people, we're good. But as soon as those sins that are so close at hand to us creep up again and afflict us, we're the ones who typically begin to feel like we're in the doghouse of God again, that we are condemned. You know what? One thing is true. An unsaved person doesn't care about this at all. They don't live life worrying that they are condemned by God. On their priority list, that might be to them a matter of indifference, maybe curiosity, vague amusement that we Christians get all bent out of shape about things like this. But to the Christian, this is an important thing to get cleared up. Bible commentator F.F. F. Bruce paraphrased it this way. He said, there is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal or punishment-related servitude as though they had never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. This is the position, this no condemnation position is the position of our justification where God in previous chapters has told us through Paul that he declares us to be righteous. Not that we experientially have proven yet that there is any righteousness in us, and we know that we bring no righteousness to God to commend us to him. God must declare us to be righteous on the basis of somebody else's righteousness. And we know that's Jesus, his son. We face no condemnation anymore. We are no longer fearful that we are slaves of sin. We should no longer be fearful of the judgment of God at all for any reason if we are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, we learned that this no condemnation is now, now. There are those in other religions who would say that you have to work for your freedom from condemnation from the gods. Even those in the Roman Catholic Church, I read in the Council of Trent, have stated this, that without a special revelation from God, which almost no one this side of heaven receives, they say, no one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. But the Bible says otherwise. Right now, you can know there is no condemnation. And this is your position in Christ 
by the power of the Spirit. You truly are not condemned. This is God's grace to you now. Secondly, your position is one of freedom from the power of sin. You are free from the power of sin. Verse 2 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There are some versions that say, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, as if Paul was still meditating on himself. There's some textual variancy here, but the stronger evidence is that he's saying you, meaning all of you that I'm writing to, but certainly he's including himself. Remember Paul just recently has said that he is a wretched man that he is just bound up with these conflicts within himself. He's not saying that this is some other hypothetical situation. He's saying that after becoming a Christian, after being in Christ, the conflict just seemed to come alive as God's law was introduced and he recognized, I can't please God on the basis of my own works. I, I have no recourse to please him, especially when he learned that coveting was one of the things that revealed that sin. You know, Paul could do pretty well by saying, I've never murdered someone, I've honored my parents, I've been in the worship of God, I'm there every single time the temple is open. But when he got to that point, don't covet, it revealed, it opened up the weakness that Paul had. You can't stop the power of sin at work in you by the power of your own flesh. There's nothing within you that can fight that urge. There has to be a greater power. And that's why in this text, we see that word law again, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Law, as we've learned, can mean two or three different things. It can be referring to the law of God, like the 10 commandments and the books of the Old Testament, It can refer to a principle or something that is generally true, or it can refer to a power or an influential thing in your life. And here in Romans 8 2, it's that third usage. It is the power or the influence that controls you. So if you read it that way, the controlling influence of the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit in you, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the controlling and dominating influence of sin and death. This is the reality of what the Spirit has done. So how has the Spirit done this? We learn thirdly of our position that we are secure in the work of God. We are secure in the work of God. So many times people want to feel secure in their relationship with God because all of their sin accounts are cleared up and there's nothing that they feel is between them and God. But don't make your works the basis of your acceptance with God. God's work for you is the basis of that security. You know, Romans 8 is so unique because it begins with no condemnation, and it ends at the end with no separation. What is the basis of such deep security? It is that God has worked for you. Look with me at verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. There's several things going on in this verse, but first that phrase, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What does that mean? It does not mean that the law of God, and that's what the meaning of law is here in verse three, of those three uses of the law, this time it refers to the commandments of God. There's nothing weak about the commandments of God. But what happens when our sinful flesh interacts with the law of God? It is revealed to be insufficient to change us. Our fleshly weakness, our sinful tendencies, our failures to honor God with our bodies and minds intersecting with that law of God reveals that law to be an insufficient savior. We cannot be redeemed by our obedience. Something radical had to happen. So God did what the law could not do. What did he do? Several phrases here. By sending his own son. This required a sacrifice of a human life for human lives. You know, only a human could take the punishment for other humans. But only God could take the wrath of God and still live. This is who Jesus is. He is the perfection of God and man. And it says likewise that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is a masterful collection of words here. Paul did not mean that Jesus came and appeared to be a man. No, he said he came in the likeness, which means the imprint, the same stuff, of sinful flesh, meaning Jesus came and appeared to be just like everybody else walking around him. And on the one hand, he was. He was flesh and blood. He came as a man. He forever will be a man. And yet, he was separate from all of them because he had no sin. This is the work of God, but that one without sin was sent in the next phrase, for sin. This is talking about that Old Testament picture of when you brought your sacrifice to God, you would lay it on the altar and that would be accepted as a covering for your sin. Guilty as you were, if you would bring your animal, put it on the altar before the Lord and he accepted that offering then that would be counted as the substitute for you. That's what this phrase means. The son was the substitute for sinners. And finally, it says that he condemned sin in the flesh at the end of verse three. He condemned sin in the flesh. By his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus once for all, which is the basis of our now no condemnation, took the sin that we deserved and died the death that we deserved so that sin, once and for all, could be condemned. This is remarkable because it's that same sense of verse one why we have no condemnation now. Because Jesus was condemned for you and me. This is the message of the work of God. This is the gospel. And if it's your first time to hear it this morning, then there is a needed response. Whenever you meet Jesus in the pages of scripture and you know about his life and what his life was intended for, the aim of his life, it was so that he would die in the place of sinful people. 
If you don't feel any condemnation for your sin this morning, and you came here this morning saying, I'm not a Christian, all this is new to me, I, I don't understand this, then I share the bad news with you that every human all over the world who has ever been born is born under the just condemnation of God. But that God worked it out so that we do not have to die in that condemnation, but could be forgiven. We could be renewed on the inside by the power of his spirit and the work of God applied where Jesus is cursed and we become free. Where the power of sin is condemned and we are justified. This is good news and if you would respond to that today, this is the message to respond to. The work of God for you. Christians, we are secure in that work. And ultimately, so that we would grow in righteousness. Look at the phrase in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Whenever you see a phrase that says, in order that, that indicates to you purpose. Why did God do the work that he did? so that the purpose of our righteous standing would be established before him. The, the intent of our personal holiness could be established before him. And there's two ways to take that. On the one hand, we could say, well, this means that Jesus is righteous, and when he died, we get his righteous standing. Now, that's true. And the Bible elsewhere affirms that. But in this passage, I strongly believe that Paul is emphasizing that when the Spirit is alive in the people of God, they themselves are now the obedient people of God. Not subject to the law of God, but walking in it in obedience. Not to get freedom and justification, but out of their justification and out of their freedom, working out in love to God, their obedience. That word is so underemphasized throughout the church, and yet it's the word that is so needed in our growth and in our security and in our position before God. Jesus, in Titus 2, says that he died to create a people who were uniquely going to be his, who were and would be zealous for good works. It doesn't say that they would become zealous for money. It doesn't say that they would be zealous for position. No, that they would be zealous in aiming their lives in the direction because they are so loved that now they just want to love and to serve God and obey him in whatever way he is pleased. Right? This is us growing in righteousness so that as we live, we then become more and more that righteous requirement that God has. So in summary, let's just think of it again before we go on. We are not condemned. In other words, we are justified. It's justification. We are set free by the spirit through the work of God. We could call that regeneration. When the Spirit applies that to someone's life, 
brings that person to life. And then living now righteous lives to the glory of God, that's sanctification. That's growth. By the end, when we get to verse 11, we'll be in glorification. Well, I've got to go on, but I just want to encourage you, live in your position. If you are a believer, living in the spirit means that you reason with yourself that way. When you are struggling, you don't immediately conclude that you've got to work your way back into God's good favor. You reason with yourself and you say to yourself, I am right now not condemned in Christ Jesus. Right now, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am actually set free from that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has done all the work that I could not do. So my work is not going to be needed to contribute to the work of God. But I can come back to God now as I'm sanctified. Our sanctification isn't like come to the cross, kind of live for a while, and then have some crisis where suddenly, boop, you're spiritual, and you live on some higher plane. It doesn't work that way. All right, sanctification is, is like this. As you come to the cross, and sorry if you are on the opposite, maybe I need to go this way for you, whatever way it works, I'll go this way. If you come to the cross and you submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right, the growth pattern is not a sudden leap and then perfection. The growth pattern looks something like this. Like your stock market. <laughs> All right, hopefully. Great strides in an upward direction with deep valleys that come. But the growth continues ever upward, right? This is a better map of our sanctification. There is not a time of crisis that leads to perfection. That's an old theology that I don't think people hold to anymore. But I don't want you to be so discouraged because of failures in your life that you don't see that real growth and change in obedience is not only possible, it is God's accomplishment for you. You can grow and change. Let's talk about what this looks like in the life in the spirit, um, the pattern of life in the spirit. This is verses four, second half of verse four down to verse 10. And in these verses, which Don read for us a little bit earlier, we see a clear contrast. That's what's at play here. Right? If, you're, if you're noting this in your Bible, this section is a contrast between two spheres, the flesh and the spirit. Now let me define the flesh really quickly. This isn't talking about the meaty parts of you. Right? This is talking about the fallen part of you that died with Christ on the cross but that still travels with you now like an unwanted guest, right? Benjamin Franklin said, fish and visitors after three days stink, right? <laughs> but in this case, your flesh is a rotting carcass that is still with you, gasping and calling you back to the life that you once lived. And what you've got to realize is that the flesh is a sphere of influence, but so is the spirit. And I am so helped as I look at these verses to think about it this way. We want to reason from the fruit down to the root. 
I love spring. I haven't always, but since I've seen the success that a garden can bring and the joy of working with things in my hands, I know how important it is to get good soil so that you can get deep roots to go down so that the plant can come up healthy and strong and produce good fruit. I didn't get that the first year that I was working in a garden and I bought things at Lowe's and just put them in some dirt and expected them to do well. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, there's, there's definite successes that you can have, but it starts at the level of how things are growing and where they are growing, right? The fruit that comes out, let's examine the fruit. Paul uses words in verse four. He says, those who walk, not according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. And then in verse five, he says, those who live according to the flesh. There's that word live and the word walk. That's talking about your lifestyle. All right, if we're going to examine the pattern, we want to see first the lifestyle of the people of the spirit and the people of the flesh. All right, on the one hand, the spirit produces fruit. Read about it in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, all these things. The walk and the lifestyle of someone who is in the spirit produces fruit like that. The lifestyle of someone who is in the flesh produces things that are diseased and nasty that no one wants to eat. Anger, impatience, lust. These things come out in the fruit of the flesh. We want to start there because those are the things that we can see. And I could at least ask at this point, what do you see coming out of your life? Habitually. I don't mean just this morning. There have been mornings when I am convinced in driving into church that neither my, my kids, my wife, nor me are Christians, okay? And you might too. What I'm talking about is as you examine your fruit, the fruit of your life for the long haul, are you seeing what I described, that stock market type growth, ugh, but steadily moving upwards? Have you seen that? Have you seen a love for God increase and a love for others more than you love yourself? Actually making sacrifices to love and it hurts, but the, the joy and the peace that come from that, that's, that's fruit. If you examine the fruit of a believer over time, you see that. Um, if you are in the flesh, then the fruit that comes out is that diseased fruit that leads to death in your relationships, broken people around you, you yourself broken. That's the flesh. How do we get to that? Well, it happens in the mind. Let's examine next the mindset. Verse five, again, it says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh, or set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now it goes on in this section to talk about this mindset. I, I don't know, friends, what happens in your minds. I'm not a mind reader. And it's good that you can't read my mind. Not everything that rattles around in here is productive or helpful. Right? But 
this word mindset isn't strictly related to how we reason or process. That's a part of what the Bible means by mindset. What it's talking about is like if you're looking at a plant or a tree, you go from the fruit down the trunk and just there at the surface where the trunk turns into the roots underground is that section underneath that you just can't quite determine but nonetheless, that's where all the power comes from for the plant to grow. And it's the mindset or the churning or the desires and the affections that are all coming into play in the life of a person. So the mindset of a person comes out in the fruit. Jesus said this, Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, in a, a place no clearer anywhere else. Mark 7 says this, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, that's getting to that mindset, that inner working and that position, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. See, the, the people of Jesus' day were concerned about stuff on the outside, and they thought, if we could just put up enough barriers around us, then wicked stuff won't happen. But Jesus said, that's not the way it works, friends. It's out of the heart of people that all the wicked stuff comes. And the way you can tell it's wicked is by what comes out of their mouths. In a moment of great tension, is it a blessing or is it a curse? When you are faced with the reality of what has come out of you, reveal, it reveals something about what you are meditating on. It's an inner process that always leads us back to a certain location and a certain thing. I'll interject here just to relieve you a little bit, a dog story. This one's funny. In El, pa El Paso, Texas this past week, there was a a rescue dog named Bailey. It came from this place called the Animal Rescue League and a family adopted Bailey and took it home. And then later on, the dog ran away from this new family and disappeared. And the family contacted the animal rescue shelter and said, please help us find our dog. You know, it ran off after just being brought here to our new home. So the Animal Rescue League put it out on social media People looked for two days and could never find the dog. But then after those two days, at 1.15 in the morning, Bailey, back at the animal shelter that it came from, rang the doorbell <laughs> and alerted the people there that she had returned to the place that was most familiar and comfortable to her. And she was eager to get back to what she knew best. You know, what's so interesting about animals is that there seems to be a, an internal homing device in them that drives them on their own incredible journeys, right? Fun movie from a long time ago about a dog, two dogs and a cat. But the reality is we ourselves have our own homing devices within ourselves that draw us back to a source that we are comfortable with. And although the animal shelter returned Bailey to her new home, and loved on her and sent her back. This is where the analogy breaks down. 
if you and I default to the flesh, the flesh does not coddle us and give us some comfort before it sends us back to the Lord. The flesh is a hard former master. And if you feel the pull in that direction, then for a Christian, you don't enjoy that. You, you see what it's like to live in this way and it grieves you. You want to return to the Lord but still feel that power pulling at you. And this is what I would say. I was going to say this in a little bit, but I want to say it now. Some of you may be saying at this point, who are believers here, I still struggle with sin. I still give in to the flesh from time to time. How do I know that I am in the spirit and not in the flesh? Well, I read this from Table Talk Magazine, which is a, a helpful resource that we get delivered to our home. Table Talk Magazine. And the author, a pastor there, said about this passage, he said, the difference on this side of glory between those who are empowered by the Spirit and those who are empowered by the flesh isn't that the former are sinless. Okay, so the person who is empowered by the Spirit, it's not that he is sinless or she is sinless. So what's the difference? The difference is that those who are empowered by the Spirit struggle with being led by self or the spirit. Whereas those empowered by the flesh never struggle against being led by self, but instead follow the self. Those who are led by the spirit struggle against the flesh, even though sometimes they follow the flesh. In the main, the desire and direction of their hearts are to please God rather than self. So let me speak to you if you are working through this pattern of life in the spirit and you are wondering, where do I fit in this? Do I belong in the flesh or in the spirit? The reality of God is that those of us who still struggle with sin yet love God, who wrestle with obedience and have some success in it and yet still fall back into the patterns of the flesh. We are in that struggle because the spirit is in you. You are in a struggle because the Holy Spirit of God has come and taken up residence in your life. And it does you no good to worry about whether the spirit is there. Instead, believe the promise that God through Christ has sent the spirit to you. By faith, believe God and submit to him and be ready by working out with the spirit in you, that obedience to God, giving praise to him for any good that comes out of you, right? This, this is where we find ourselves. But friends, a warning for those who would examine the root and find only the flesh, Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10 says this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord 
whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Lord speaks and says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. My goal here is not to linger on Jeremiah 17, but to allow that comparison of God to resonate in your minds today. If you find yourself, honestly, in that category of the flesh, if you don't feel the tug of the Spirit to love the Lord and to yield to Jesus, If you came here today not knowing anything about that struggle, the Bible describes you as a shrub in the desert. Now, I've seen some things that are are just cursed with the August sun here. I can't imagine what it's like in the desert heat trying to grow things where there is no water. But this is the picture of somebody who is in the flesh. You see, their roots are just barely clinging into dry, dead ground. And that's what it describes a person who is away from Christ, who does not know Jesus, and who does not have the Holy Spirit because he does not know Jesus. If this is you today, then it begins with assessing yourself like God does. Our hearts are incurably sick. They are bent inward on ourselves wanting what we want and we exclude god that's why romans 8 tells us the flesh is hostile to god and that it not only doesn't please god but even in the good things that an unbelieving person does loving a neighbor being respectful of property being kind even sacrificing for a child or a loved one good things that do not please God because the orientation of the flesh is curved in on itself, desiring things for themselves to the exclusion of God. Hostility with God, friends, is nothing to linger in because judgment will come and condemnation is on the way. But you can be protected from it if you today would run to Jesus. You can be like that tree that's planted deep in the ground. You can be like that fruitful tree that has stretched its roots out in fertile ground near a water source. Go out and drive by the Tennessee River and see how many trees are by the riverbank. You see how many trees in general are around here. This is a beautiful green place because this city was founded by a river. And it gets adequate rainfall, and those things shoot up out of health and growth. We can be green like that in the Christian life, even if the heat of trials and the difficulties of life keep pounding us, we can withstand it because there is a source of life coming from deep underground where God is at work, no matter what is happening here on the outside. Right? That, that is much preferable to the flesh. And it is the pathway, the pattern 
of releasing the Spirit's power at work in you. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, today is that day. I want to end with one promise with two aspects, and then we'll be done. In the third place, the promise of life in the Spirit. And this has some really good news, as if the other was not. All right, we end, though, with a power that meets us where we're at. The Holy Spirit is defined in verse 9 as the Spirit of God, and likewise as the Spirit of Christ. That doesn't mean that the Spirit is God the Father. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is Jesus Christ. We could have a whole other lesson on the Trinity right now. We won't do that. What this means is that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit our three persons and one God, all aimed at helping you to live life in the power of God right now. We read in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So how do you know if you are in the Spirit? If the Spirit is in you. <laughs> I know that might seem a little bit circuitous. It might seem like we're just going around and not landing. But this is the reality. The hallmark definition of a Christian is someone within whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus once said in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It was really hard for the disciples in the upper room to fathom life without Jesus. They loved him. They had given up everything to follow him. And friends, I really think if Jesus were to come here today to preach and to spend time with you, you would be willing to do the same. There is no one like Jesus. And he still is alive today. But it was hard for the disciples to think about Jesus leaving them. Right? They had seen him do marvelous things, raise the dead, heal the sick, multiply fish and bread. And they were eager for Jesus to continue with them, but he said, no, it's better if I go away. Jesus was just one person, one man, in self-imposed limitation because of his mission. But his goal was to get back to the Father and to send down the Spirit so that he could be connected to each of his people. His goal was to give life to each of his people and to be connected so that his promise in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, has some meat to it. The spirit is that meat. He's the main course in this season of Christian experience in life. And how do we know that we have the spirit there have often been times that I, like Paul in Romans 7.24, have cried out, wretched man that I am, when I experienced the weight of my own flesh and the pull of sin. But how many times have I gone back to the Bible and I have read about Jesus in the Gospels or in the epistles that explain his life and ministry and it dawns on me with light on the inside of my heart. Jesus is alive. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Jesus is still here. Jesus leaps out of the pages of the Bible to address my need. That's the response of a Christian. That's the response of the Spirit in you. The the, the sign of the Spirit in you is not excessive gifts. It's not speaking in a foreign language. It is knowing and loving and responding to Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. Have you experienced that? Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? The Spirit can make you alive today. And Christian, he can renew you. Go back and learn of Jesus and experience his life right now. But I conclude with this. We can experience now the life of Christ, but we will experience someday resurrection life. For it says in verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One day, according to this verse, we will be made to be like Jesus. Just like he was brought back from the dead by the power of the spirit through the work of God the Father, that same spirit now dwells in the heart and life of a believer so that we too one day will be made like Jesus in his glorious resurrection. How is this possible? It's that word dwell. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And it concludes the spirit who dwells in you. That word dwells talks about, really you could say literally, it means to dwell deep, to dwell down means to live in such a place and set up roots. That's what we say when we go to a new place and we buy a home and we join a community. We put down our roots. This is what the Spirit has done. He has put down his roots in your life. Even as now your life is rooted in him, he is in you. And the work that he is doing goes deep. And someday, through many trials, even though your bodies wear out, your spirits are renewed. And someday, you will, as we sang this morning, stand in the presence of Jesus in a redeemed body that will never again even know or experience sin and stand in the accomplished, no condemnation, security in the spirit, the work of God, for the glory of God. These are good things, amen? Father, thank you so much for the glory of Romans 8. We've only touched and scratched the surface, but so much is here. Lord, I ask that you help us. Help us to apply a passage that doesn't give us commands. It'd be so easy to walk away from here today with a command to do something. But first, we need to acknowledge that the work has been done. So I pray that by your spirit, you would work that out in us. And help us to rejoice in the work of God done and to respond as you guide us and as you help us walk in the Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.